Brick Moon Fiction presents When Blue is Red by Brad Kale Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Father had paid the coyote everything we had left in this world. My mother's gold cross and other necklaces dangled from his neck, and the last of our money bulged in his pockets. I had no idea what he would do with the stuff, things being as they were, but seeing the possessions of my family so proudly owned by another left a sour pit in my stomach. He stood with the cockiness of someone who was used to physically overpowering those he disagreed with. His clothes were drab, a handgun was holstered at his thigh and a rifle slung over a shoulder. His pack was heavy with supplies and what I suspected was more military gear. The coyote nodded for us to follow, and as we moved into the dry and browning trees, I glanced back at what would be the last look at my home. It wasn't much, peeling paint and crooked fence posts, a dirty bike leaning up against a plastered wall, a garden plot that had dried and gone to weeds. But I had grown up here, and that was all that mattered. I touched for my peacom out of fear I had forgotten it. On it were simages of my room and the other rooms of the house. I took them, hoping to recreate a sense-render of the place if I ever got a chance. It was a stupid idea, but I held on to it anyway, maybe out of stubbornness. Maybe as a way to control what had been taken out of my hands. Secretly, I feared that if I wasn't able to see my home, to actually peer at it in the sun, my memories of it and things surrounding it would become blurry, first around the edges, and then be consumed entirely save for some distant feelings and uncertain recollections. I nervously felt the same thing about my father, that if I didn't keep him in constant sight, he'd fade from me too. Our old rover was parked under a bent tree, leaves and dust covering it in thick layers. Fuel had become pretty scarce after the repeated earthquakes and floods, so it hadn't been moved in years. It was father's favorite car. He'd work on it for hours in the yard, with me handing him tools when he needed them. I used to call the channel locks Dinosaur Grabbers, and the name stuck. Dinosaur Grabbers, my father would call, and I'd place the tool in his big hand as he reached from under the frame. Now the car was just a dead heap, a rusting bag of memories waiting to be abandoned. Father grabbed my hand and pulled me along behind the man he had hired. The trees that were once green and had surrounded my imagination years before were now brown and leafless. Dried, Popcorn-like growths speckled the trunks and branches in yellowish clumps. Father said that that was where the beetles had bored in to lay their eggs. Now even the beetles were gone. The sun shone through a veil of smoke and clouds and hung in the sky, a red globe. The orange clouds, cracked and divided into jagged pieces by the crooked branches, normally beautiful, were now a source of anxiety and fear. A hot wind blew through the valley and kicked up a cloud of dust and leaves, which then scattered into dried pools. I could smell the smoke of a distant fire on the wind, and occasionally an ember or two would swim around in the air and then wink out. I coughed as the air thickened, and Father handed me a breathing mask from his pack. I took several deep breaths, and my lungs opened to the cool, sterile oxygen. For several hours, the only sounds were the sounds of the leaves crunching beneath our boots as we trudged along, and the intermittent chirps of birds that had taken up residence in these parts. The calls were unfamiliar to me, but they were a welcome departure from the monotony of the detritus and the smoke-filled wind. Several times the coyote would stop with his hand raised and unsling his rifle. 
He would gesture for us to get low, and he would crouch to a boulder or log and scan where he thought he heard something. Each time I would inch close to my father and notice his own hand on his handgun gripping the handle tightly. After a few moments, the coyote would signal that all was clear and we'd continue on our way. Eventually we came upon a rise that overlooked the hills below. An earlier fire had completely burned the area black some time before. Twisted branches pointed in all directions, and cracked trunks crowded the blackened ground. A winding brown snake of an animal trail meandered through the broken trees and over several hills. The coyote scanned the surroundings and, satisfied, chose to take the path. My father and I followed closely behind. The trees out here had burnt long enough ago that the smell of charred wood was distant, but still clinging to the air. It was just enough to make me feel it was hard to breathe, and I often used the breathing mask to ease the sensation. Don't use that all up, my father sternly warned. We don't know when we'll be needing it the most. I put the mask in my pack, determined not to use it for the rest of the day. Still, I snuck a couple of breaths from it when it became rough and scratchy in my throat. I think my father noticed, but he said nothing. I wondered how he didn't even once use it himself. The sun set, and the coyote said that we'd make camp in this small grove of withered trees. We had moved beyond the burn zone and into a copse that had been spared the wildfire. A large boulder gave us some shelter on one side, while a couple of trees formed a circle that, at the very least, provided us with some illusion of protection. As we unpacked some of our supplies, the coyote said in a monotone voice that he'd be back. He took some gear from his pack and headed into the dying light. Gather some wood, my father said to me, his tone nearly the same as the coyote's, but stay close. I did as I was told and found some wiry twigs and branches for the fire. It wasn't difficult. Most of the wood was dry and ready to burn. The blaze started easily, catching first the kindling and then the larger firewood. I couldn't help but think of the forest we had passed through. First a small fire burning a tree or two and then, unchecked, growing into a wildfire that leveled the hole. I remembered the brown clouds glowing at night from the different burns. If you climbed to a peak, you could see the red lines of the flames miles into the distance, like the world had cracked open and was leaking its insides. My father's head jerked up at a sound, but it was only the coyote coming back from his tasks, whatever they were. Neither my father nor I asked. The man knew his business. Asking questions wouldn't help him do it either way. He found a log to sit on and propped his rifle against it. My father had taken a couple of ready-mades from his bag and pushed the starters on both. The packs inflated slightly and began to steam from the edges. He offered the coyote one, but the man shook his head and gathered his own food from his pack, a large chunk of jerky and some dried fruit. At my look, he twisted a piece off of the dried meat and threw it to me. My father shot me a look that was both anger and resignation. His eyes reflected the fire as he opened his ready-made and ate at the steaming meal silently. I would never forget that look. It was the look of a man paddling against a current too strong even for him, but still battling even though his eyes knew the truth and his arms warned against any further struggle. The jerky was sweet, but there was a lingering bitterness to it that wouldn't leave my mouth. What's your name? I asked the coyote. He chewed at his jerky and shrugged. What does it matter? We won't know each other for long. 
Names matter. They tell you who you are. Mine's Isabel. Means believing in God. It means devoted to God, my father corrected. Your mother gave you that name. The coyote found a branch and broke a twig off. He flipped the wisp into the fire. God, he scoffed. Look around you, kid. That's enough, my father warned. No matter what my name is, my job is the same. Changes nothing. He cracked another twig off and scratched at his neck. The angular top of a tattoo was visible above his collar. The moon shone small in the sky. Dark clouds passed regularly. Whether they were the clouds of distant fires or storm clouds, I couldn't tell. But the moon would vanish, only to reappear moments later, dull and leaden. Staring up, I wondered about what it would be like to live far away, far where this had never happened. Where the weather was nice, and the air was sweet to breathe. I imagined seeing the snow, cold and white, covering a mountain, and how I'd like to just fall into the coolness and giggle without a care in the world. I had never seen the snow, but images of it were beautiful. I made up my mind that I'd live wherever there was snow, white blankets for as far as the eye could see. Thunder rumbled over the tops of the trees, and the first drops hissed in the fire as they came down, bringing with them a more steady rain. The fire smoked as it was further dampened, and the camp became even darker with the wet earth mirroring the flat sky. Father tied up a tarp that kept most of the water off of us and our things. The coyote slicked his hair back to get the rain out of his eyes, but otherwise didn't seem to notice or care about it. He sat poking at the fire, eking what warmth and light he could get from it despite the downpour. The rain filled the air with a steady buzz, broken only by the thunder that was getting louder and more forceful. Even through the noise I caught the sound of a twig snapping somewhere outside of the dim circle of light the fire cast. The coyote jumped into a crouch and grabbed his gun, scanning. He peered into the darkness, but there was only the sound of the rain. Taking the man's cue, my father slid the handgun from his holster and looked to the coyote, who studied the shadows. Before I was told to do so, I crouched low next to the boulder wall. I told myself it was only a deer or a raccoon, but my heart was beating in my chest. The tarp snapped in the wind. Then a flash of lightning revealed a face in the darkness. My breath caught in my chest. Before the face could fade from view, it moved into the circle of light, followed by another man off to his side. The coyote leveled his gun, and the men stopped their advance. My father aimed his own weapon. They were dressed in dull clothes that had worn thin and were torn in places. Their outfits were layered enough to give them some protection, but it was clear they were soaked through. The second man wore a dark watch cap low above his glittering eyes. Both of them had military-looking rifles, along with knives and other implements of violence that had seen their share of use. The first man smirked. He was almost attractive, save for the menace that flashed over his eyes. He reached behind his belt and tossed a mass of wires and plastic sensors into the mud near the fire. The coyote glanced at them, recognizing the tangle, then back through the sights on his gun. You might be wondering about those, the man said. It was a good thought, early warning and all that. But up here, well, we've seen them before. Not too effective if you know what you're looking for. I'll give you five to leave before I open fire, the coyote said, 
his voice slate. The man nodded, his mouth turned down in consideration. Hmm, he intoned. That's a thought. But the thing is, that's not the only things we've seen. You see, you need leverage, too. Leverage before you pull something like this with an obviously capable person such as yourself. Four seconds, the coyote informed. We don't have anything. Just move on, my father interjected, his own voice low over the rain. The man smirked again. Everyone always says that. But they always wind up having something. Always. People say you can't get blood from a stone. I find they just don't squeeze hard enough. My father's eyes darted from one man to the other. His finger was firm on the trigger of his handgun. Water dripped from its butt, but he kept it steady on the man's partner. I could hardly breathe. I wanted to run, to hide in the darkness somewhere safe, but my legs wouldn't move. I started to shake, first my lower half, then deep in my chest. I didn't notice the sound off to my side until it was too late. A dark blur in the corner of my vision. A third man had snuck right next to me. His arm was around my neck in an instant, and I was pulled to the side, the frigid muzzle of a handgun placed against my temple. I let out a whimper. My father glanced my way with only his eyes, then, upon seeing me held, spun around and leveled his aim at the man who had me in his grip. Leverage, the first man said, as I was saying. He boldly took a step further into the camp. Look, we don't want any trouble either. Honest. He smiled, a mockery of friendship. Like hell, my father hissed. Let her go, now. The man with the cap brought his rifle up and aimed it at the coyote. Well, we'll get to that in a sec, said the first man. We just need your food and water, whatever money and valuables you have, and she'll be sleeping soundly tonight under the rainy sky, right next to Daddy. He frowned for a moment. It is Daddy, isn't it? I mean, she's not some weird sex toy, is she, old man? The partner with the cap barked a laugh. It was filled with malice and a sick desire of its own. The muscles in my father's jaw clenched, but he didn't flinch. His eyes were like steel, staring at the man that had me. Water dripped down his face, but he was like a statue. I pushed against the arm around my neck, but it was like a piece of iron, muscled and unyielding. He smelled sickeningly of sweat and something sharp like vinegar. I was glad the water from the rain ran down my face so my father couldn't see the tears streaming uncontrollably from my eyes. You might get the better of me, but so help me one of you will lose an eye or a limb or end up face down in the mud. I promise you that. My father's words were level and hard. He meant what he said. The man nodded in thought. What are you doing out here anyway? Putting your family in harm's way like this, he asked, ignoring the threat. The last ships to the blue headed out seasons ago. His eyes squinted. Unless you have a way off this rock. We don't have anything. We're moving on to better climbs, that's all. Is that so? Is that so, Coyote? Moving on to better climbs? Neither the Coyote nor my father answered. It was a rhetorical question. He smiled again. I hate to break this to you, but there are no better climbs. That's for us to decide, my father growled. Look, those that had the money got out of this shithole quick. Those without, 
Well, the only things left are the scum and the trash. Which would make you what? I mean, you have to be one or the other. If you had the money, you would be long gone by now. The man spit on the ground. It's you who chooses to be scum. You can walk away from this yourself. No one forces you, my father said over his shoulder. Maybe. Maybe the world forces us. Maybe it's in the water, he shrugged. We weren't always like this. I was a broker. Had an office and everything. Just got caught in a bad downdraft. And Stearns over there was actually a survey engineer or some shit. But you gotta do what you gotta do, right? Save your confessions, my father said low. My daughter and I have nothing to do with your past. Or your life now. See, that's where you're wrong. She has everything to do with now. The man scratched behind an ear. Look, it'd be best for you if you just give us what we want and turn around and head back home. What's left of it anyway. There's nothing for you out there but others like us. And death, he said, his voice trying to be reasonable. Trust me. I can give you some of our food, the coyote offered. His tone was more business than kindness. I already know that. You're going to give us the food. All of it. And the gold you have there, the man said, pointing at the necklaces around the coyote's neck. And whatever cash you have squirreled away. Like I said, blood from or on a stone. Your call. He had, up to this point, his gun lowered. But he brought it up and aimed it directly at my father. Now, he ordered, his voice sliding from mockery to mean. The coyote tensed. I felt the arm around my neck constrict, and I strained to breathe, my chest wheezing quickly as I pulled at the damp air. My father leaned forward, about to take a step, and I could feel the man that had me nod at him, forcing him to freeze. The thunder rumbled loud in the sky above. This isn't some negotiation, the first man said. We're not in some boardroom. You will either live or die tonight. And your kid there? Something much more miserable for her. It's your choice. Just then a bright explosion bloomed from a nearby tree trunk. The men jerked their heads in the direction of the blast, startled. Then another blazing white ball of fire erupted counterclockwise from the first, sparks flying out in a great cascade, further blinding the gunmen. They held their arms up against the stark light and blinked feverishly. I saw the coyote move his finger from a toggle back to the trigger on his rifle. The flashbangs bought him the precious moments he needed, and he filled the time like lightning. Two rounds, and before he could even turn back an inch, the man with the cap's head jerked and twisted, and he flopped to the ground, dead. The ringleader, realizing the ruse, turned and fired in a desperate, unfocused spray. His gun's muzzle lit his face with the blasts. The boulder near me sparked, and nearby trees threw splinters into the air. The coyote moved as if it were a well-practiced rehearsal. He fell to the ground and fired a perfect burst. A series of red blooms opened up in the man's chest and tore their way to his face. He fell back, bloody in the rain, a quick red cloud dissipating in the air, vacated by his body. My father didn't hesitate to make his own move. A quick pop and his bullet found the man who had me. I felt his arm slacken around my neck and then fall away from me as he slumped into the mud, sickly expelling the air from his lungs. My father surged forward and shoved me behind, 
shielding me as if the thief could strike from the ground like a snake. Stearns pathetically looked up at my father, his eyes wide with pain and fear. A rivulet of blood ran from his neck and mixed with the rain and mud. He gurgled something, a plea of some kind. With one hand up, he reached for a pocket and brought out some dirty, wadded bills that he had there. My father leveled his gun at the man's head and fired. There was a brief spasm of the body, and then it went limp, splashing into the mud. The blood continued to swirl into the rainwater. I felt the warm wetness of my face and looked at my hand. It was red with the thug's blood. I quickly wiped my hand on my jeans, smearing the dark color into the fabric. I heard two other shots and looked over, frightened. It was the coyote. He fired into the heads of each of the assailants and then bent to searching the bodies. My father grabbed me and hugged me to him. His heart was beating strongly in his chest, and I cried openly into his wet clothes. Then I felt something give in him. His usually sturdy frame felt loose and fragile, like the frame of an old house about to fall over in a strong wind. He slumped to a knee and held his side. The blood ran from between his fingers, darkening his clothes. Damn it, he grunted. The coyote noticed his distress and rushed over and pushed my father back against the rock so he could examine the wound. He bent him forward to see his back. Bullets lodged in there, he informed. He opened his pack and slapped a bandage pack on the bleeding hole. My father grimaced. Hold that there, he instructed me. I placed my hand on the wound. Tight, he commanded, and I pressed down, causing my father to grimace again. Under the material I could feel my father's heartbeat as the blood strained to escape. My head began to feel light at the same time my chest grew heavy. The edges of my vision were dark and fuzzy. The coyote snapped in my face, then tapped my cheeks. Girl! Isabel! He shouted my name. Don't do that. Breathe. His face was close to mine. Hold tight. He pressed his hand down on mine. I took a deep breath and focused on my fuzzy hand. The coyote peeled some tape from a spool and covered the wound, then placed another wad of gauze over that. Damn it, not now, my father repeated. The bleeding will stop, he said coldly, but we don't have time to fix it. We've made a lot of noise. We have to move. If there are more of them. He grabbed at the packs on the ground and helped my father to his feet. I can walk, he groaned. Even after saying that, he reached for my shoulder to steady himself. The rain continued to pour down. White lines streaked down in the flashlight's beams that shot through the trees, lighting a drenched path only the coyote could see. A few times he called something over his shoulder, but the rain was coming down too hard to hear. My father leaned harder into me and clutched at his side. His jaw clenched, but he didn't otherwise complain or ask to stop. The hours went by, leaden and slow. The constant pouring of the rain became an unrelenting irritant. My eyes burned and my legs ached. Even the slightest pressure from my father felt like a sack of rocks bearing down on me. Thankfully, the coyote held a hand up and brought us to a stop. We had long moved past the burned trees and blackened mud and had come upon a rocky cliff. A jagged fissure in the cliff wall allowed us shelter from the rain. The coyote motioned for me to wait and entered the triangular crack. 
Moments later, his flashlight lanced back out, and I could see the outline of his hand through the white streaks of the rain gesturing the okay. I followed him into a small cave with a low ceiling and rough walls. I guided my father to the floor and propped him against the side of the cave. He leaned his head back and closed his eyes. A gravelly breath escaped his lungs as he struggled to breathe in the stale air. The coyote's flashlight lit a ring of stones in the middle of the floor. Someone had used the shelter before. He held his hand over the remaining wood and ash. Cold, he said. Long gone. He stacked the remaining burnt branches and some other bits of wood he found lying nearby and started a fire. The flames were small, but welcome. As I put my pack down, I noticed something irregular in the dirt. I kicked at the small mound and revealed the sleeve of a shirt. I pulled it loose and held the shirt up in the dim light. It was the size of a young child's, maybe six or seven. On the front it said, Rocket Man, in a circular pattern, and in the middle was a cartoon boy riding a bright red rocket. I turned it around. The back was torn and stained with blood. I dropped it in the dirt like it had bitten me. Brigands, perhaps the same ones, came the coyote's voice. Who knows? He strung a line above the fire and stripped his jacket, vest, and shirt off and hung them over the flames to dry. His tattoo was inked on the upper part of his chest, ending at the lower portion of his neck. It was of an ornate crucifix, its ends terminating in traditional clover designs. The scars across his muscled body were jagged and numerous, blending hauntingly with the cross. He noticed my stare at the crisscrossing scars and said flatly, Cost of doing business. I took off my wet jacket and hung it over the fire, as he had done. I eased my father out of his wet things. He winced at every move and let out several heavy breaths. I offered him some oxygen from my breathing mask, and he breathed into it deeply. The crevices in his forehead eased, and he nodded slightly. The coyote moved to his side and examined his wound. My father's breathing had grown more labored despite the brief respite, and his face was clammy and ashen. As the coyote moved the bandage to look at the gunshot wound, he moaned loudly and gritted his teeth. The bleeding isn't stopping. Slowing, maybe. I have to see. He pulled further at the bandage, and my father let out a low cough of pain. The sound was rough, like an animal wounded in the woods. As the soaked bandage was pulled off, fresh blood, bright and red, spilled down his side, into the dirt. My father's breathing quickened but the coyote's face remained emotionless and flat, like the stone surrounding us. Come here, he commanded me. Hold this tight again. I did as he directed, and he pulled a bag from his pack. I have to stitch it up, he said. Can't you give him anything for the pain? I asked. There's nothing to give. I need to find the bullet and close it up. I looked into my father's eyes. He looked directly back at me and nodded the okay. I grabbed his hand. The coyote poured some alcohol on his hands and then over the wound. Without hesitation, he jabbed a finger into the wound. My father's hand contracted around mine and his eyes went wide. I had never felt the strength of him before. I held as tightly as I could, but the hold was immense and painful. I looked straight at him, refusing to let him see any of the anxiety reflected on my face. The coyote was thankfully quick about his business. He had probably done this before, probably on himself. 
he pulled the bullet free and tossed it aside without looking at it. Then he went about stitching the wound with a bent needle and some thread. My father's breathing would deepen and slacken with every stitch, but finally the coyote tied it off, cut the thread with his teeth. It'll hold, for now, he said. He tapped a bandage back over the wound. His patient closed his eyes and relaxed his grip. The worst of it was over. Try to sleep, father, I said, and helped him get as comfortable as possible. He nodded distantly and let his head relax against the shirt I wadded for a pillow. I made sure the bloodstains from the boy's shirt didn't show. The rain continued to come down in waves outside. First light, then heavier, and then light again. The wind gusted bitterly inside the cave and whipped the fire so our shadows flickered on the walls. The coyote washed the blood from his hands in a pool of water and wiped them dry on his jeans. What's your name? For real this time, I asked him. He sat down and began to wipe his rifle down. Why do you keep asking this? Because I like to know who the man protecting us is. His eyes did not move from the gun he was drying. Anil, he said guardedly. What's it mean? It means he who doesn't like talking about what his name means. He toweled the rifle's barrel dry and started on his handgun. You just don't know, I shot back. He shrugged and went back to his gun. Why the cross? He looked down at his tattoo from the awkward angle. It's a reminder. Of what? That no matter who you are, no one's going to save you. That's kind of backwards. You got a cross to remind you that you're screwed? I used to think it meant something else. He clenched at his shirt to see if it had dried any, but that's what it means now. Save yourself, because no one, not God, no one is going to do it for you. My mother always said that no matter what, we were always being watched over. Yeah, where's she now? He asked, knowing the answer. Buried behind the house we left. She got a disease. We could have saved her, probably, but it was a bad heat wave that week and it made things worse. Everything moved pretty quick in that heat. Hospitals were packed. That's her necklace you have around your neck. I pointed to the bright crucifix. Anil ignored the gesture. Instead, he examined a compass he pulled from a pants pocket and set it aside on a nearby rock. We should be there in a day or so, depending. On what? On him. He jabbed a finger in my father's direction. How he holds up. He stabbed a wire he had found at the fire and stoked it. Some embers trailed up into the air. He'll make it. He's stronger than anyone I know. You heading back to the Big Blue, huh? Yep. Father says it's been long enough for it to be okay. We should be able to find a place. Maybe start a farm. You think so? We did hear what we did there first. We build it up, then we break it right back down again. There's nothing there but a hot rock, he said, the firelight heavy on his face. Everyone's headed there. I'm sure they wouldn't leave if there was just nothing. You think time just fixed things? Nothing will grow there anymore. It's just the blind leading the blind, following each other to hell. You just don't have any faith. In humanity? His smile was shiny white. Humanity just put a bullet in your dad, kid. 
humanity wanted to drag you away and make you a sex doll. Have faith that humans do what's best for them, and worse for everything else. The fire crackled as a damp wind pushed in uninvited. Whole planets? Poof. Business as usual. How are you any different, then? I hugged my knees against the chill. Who said I was? Sleep was miserable and intermittent. My father groaned through the night, but at least he was getting some rest. Once I heard the pop of distant gunfire and a response of the same. The coyote opened an eye and tightened his finger on the trigger of his gun. But the gunfire stayed remote, and the gunmen never showed themselves. As dawn lit the interior of the cave in a pale light, Anil stamped out the last of the embers. Time to move, he announced, and came to help my father up. He placed my father's arm around his neck and hoisted him. I propped him up from the other side. After some time, my father's stiff legs found their way, and he stood on his own. He moved slowly, but he was able to walk. Are you okay? I asked him quietly. I'm fine, he said, his voice gravelly and low. I'm fine. His weak smile betrayed the lie. Dark circles had formed under his eyes. I tried to give him some air from the mask, but he weakly pushed it away. The sky was overcast and gray, but the rain had finally let up. We slogged through the muddy ground toward our destination. That the rain was gone was a brief happiness. The resulting humidity quickly became a sweltering hell. Bugs swarmed us and bit at our skin. I swatted them away from my father's face and arms, but they returned just as quickly. Our boots sucked into the ground as we trudged through the newly formed mud. The forest gave way to rocky badlands. Soaring boulders impeded a direct path, so we snaked through blind valleys and around impenetrable gorges. Father grew worse as we made it through the barrens. His face lost color and his movements became sluggish and erratic. It was like he were a marionette moving by way of an unskilled master. I positioned myself under a shoulder and allowed him to lean on my slight frame. Even this little bit seemed to help him move. I can make it, he said to me in a whisper. It was all the breath he could muster. My own voice caught in my breath with the sound. I know, Father. We're almost there. Over there, Anil called. He had stopped at the top of a slope and was pointing down toward a crater below, far out. In the center of the massive divot, the dull light caught the mottled white of a building. Hours out. Let's move, he said, and bounded down the slope. Those hours passed slowly and painfully. Father seemed to grow worse with every step. His breathing was noticeable and heavy. My own legs and lungs ached with the effort to move both myself and him. I helped Father to sip at the canteen before taking a drink myself. I longed to get to our destination. There would be supplies and medicine there. Father could better recover in the shelter with the proper necessities. We finally came to the slope of the crater and managed to find a path down. The reddish dirt was slightly lighter in a ribbon where it was worn with the passage of some sort of traffic, so it was easy to follow. The way switched back several times as the slope steepened and then eased off. The boulders became fewer as we descended, and I noticed the red dirt visibly give way to gray. On the path, the transition was slight, but looking at the walls of the crater it was apparent as a sharp line running horizontally at this elevation. 
we had passed a boundary of some kind. The white building came into view ahead. It was a standard hangar with a curved roof of white hexagonal parts. A small office was attached to the side with broken windows. Instruments and sensor arrays, now hanging lifeless, protruded from a scaffolding that shot above the structure. The whole of the installation was covered in patches of rust and discoloration. A plant had managed, even out this far, to have grown wild over the sides and through the shattered windows. But now it hung brown and dead. Father labored to raise his head and smiled weakly at the sight of the ramshackle structure. Anil barred my way forward with his arm as he scanned the building. He raised a pair of binoculars to his eyes. Stay here, he said, and unslung his rifle as he strode forward, staying low. In the distance I made him out, peeking into windows and scuffling around the back to get a better view. Suddenly a terror clutched at my chest. What if he didn't return? What if something went wrong? What if someone was there? There was little I could do out here without my father and this stranger whom we had given everything. A couple of breathless moments later, he returned to the front of the building and waved in my direction. I pulled my father's arm around my shoulder and exhaustedly made my way over to where he was. The building was even worse close up. Holes had chewed their way through the facade and rust had gotten to whatever metal was used for the structure. Glass had been broken out of every window around the office, and the now dead plant life choked every hole with brown leaves and brittle vines. We made our way to the front of the hangar, and a giant rollaway gate greeted us. A keypad, noticeably newer than the rest of the building, sat to one side. Somehow it blinked with power. Zero, four, two, four, seven, zero, came my father's voice, weak but with purpose. Anil fingered the code into the keypad, and miraculously the gate groaned and eventually lifted back up into the ceiling. Rusty powder sifted down as it slammed into place. And there it was in the last of the sunlight. A brilliant white Corsair LRS, long-range shuttle, the same in the pictures and images my father had demanded from the sellers. I walked my father into the hangar and propped him against the ship. He smiled weakly up at me and nodded, his hand went to his side as he came to rest against the hard surface. His breathing came sharp and heavy, and his head tilted back against the smooth fuselage. Anil came around the nose and gestured for me to follow. A look of concern, as far as the coyote could manage one, was solid on his face. I rounded to the boarding side of the ship. The hatch was already open. I walked up the stairs, a feeling of dread following each step. As I passed through the open airlock, my heart collapsed, like the last domino in a dark chain. The entire interior had been gutted. Supplies, medicine, computer systems, lockers, impact suits, all of it. Panicked, I rushed to the front. All of the systems had been removed there, too. We're never here in the first place. There were no signs of thievery or destruction. Everything was clean and in order just without necessary systems to lift off and survive. The men that had sold this to my father, former workers and contractors that had a line on something illegal, had clearly swindled him. Tears came to my face as panic welled up in my chest. I came down the gangway and the coyote was leaning against the hangar wall. He listlessly butted his gun at the floor. 
I came around to my father, who was curled up on his side. I ran to him and pushed him to his back, where a distant groan escaped his lips. His skin had grown even more ashen, and his eyes looked distant and cold. Father, I cried. Father. At the sound, Anil came from around the ship and pulled my father's shirt open. He ripped at the bandage and the horror underneath revealed itself. The skin was a deep purple, almost black, and blood continued to ooze from the wound. Crimson veins spiderwebbed their way from the central pool and expanded out across his side and chest. Internal bleeding, Anil said. Do something! Help him! I shouted up at him. Nothing to do, he replied. Bullet must have nicked something in there. An artery. I struggled for words, my worlds collapsing one after the other. Father, wake up! He opened his eyes. They were distant stars in his face, far off and floating. We made it, he said in a whisper. We made it. Yes, Father, we made it. Tears blurred my vision of him. The ship's here. It's right here behind you. We're going to make it to Earth. You're safe, he said quietly, his eyes closing. You're safe. His face contorted in pain. A couple of gold necklaces fell to the ground near my knee. My mother's crucifix glittered in the dirt. Half came Anil's voice above me. My father's body shook. He's suffering, he said. It's up to you. His gear rattled as he adjusted it. Nothing more to do here, he said. He butted his gun at the ground as if punctuating his decision, before hoisting it to his shoulder and walking to the open gate. I watched him as he strode into the new night. You know what your name means? I shouted after him. He stopped. It means child of the wind. I looked it up. It's just sound. I began to choke on the words as fresh tears welled up. It's nothing. He walked until I couldn't see him anymore. A distant thunder cracked in the sky, threatening more rain. I sat unmoving for what seemed like hours. My hands became oddly calm, as if there were nothing left to shake out of them anymore. I unclasped my father's gun and placed the hard barrel to his temple. A dying planet stretched far into the distance around us. The sand in the moonlight now looked like long blankets of snow. White drifts, soft and peacefully inviting, sparkled in patches as the light passed through the clouds. I could almost pretend I was somewhere else. A cabin, maybe, ready to go out and play in the white powder like I had always wanted, to touch the clean coldness of it to my face. I looked out at a distant star, equally cold. Maybe Earth. It hung in the black night a weakly shining gem, pale and fragile, millions of miles off. Impossible to reach. As the first drops of a new storm wet my face, I wondered if it were raining there, too. Bradley Kale has been writing in various media for the last 15 years. He authored the well-known graphic novel series The Red Star, which was nominated for four Industry Eisner Awards 
and subsequently was recently optioned by Warner Brothers for producer Neil Moritz, maker of Fast Five, Green Hornet, and Battle L.A. He also authored a miniseries entitled Assassin while co-founding the publishing company Archangel Studios. He has also written for Marvel Comics like Jean Grey, Chaos Comics like Lady Death, Humanoids Press like Desideratum, Oni Press like Creator, Buddha Master, and Angst Man, and Guardians of Order Press like Creator and Underworld. He completed two graphic novels for Disney's Kingdom Comics, Shrink and The Files of Dexter Riley, along with developing a third entitled Museum of the Weird. He has also adapted several books for screen and written several screenplays waiting to see the light of day. Kale has recently finished his first novel, entitled Coins, The Five Hammers of the Void, for Jason Reed Productions. He is currently writing a second, and a third. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.